At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All music you hear in this episode of the American Muse podcast is supplied exclusively by Naxos Records. To hear and purchase full works, please go to Naxos, N-A-X-O-S dot com. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. So this is it, ladies and gents, the episode where we discuss the piece for which this podcast was named and the composer that wrote it, William Schumann and his Symphony No. 10, American Muse. The man literally got letters in the mail telling him either how awful his music was or how it changed someone's life. Were he still alive today, I would absolutely send him a physical letter thanking him for so dramatically affecting my own life. Ironically, I did in fact send his two children, Andrea and Anthony, physical letters to ask for their permission to use the music you just heard at the beginning of this podcast. Anyway, let's talk about this man and his fantastic compositions. I first heard music by William Schumann when I was an eager young musician in middle school. I listened to his Symphony No. 5, performed by Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic String Section recorded on a vinyl record. I kid you not. The opening bars explode with energy and melodic creativity unlike I had ever heard. It was forceful, bold, full of life. It drew me in and to this day has not let go. From that moment, I knew I had to know more about this man and his music. He and his music are a large part of the reason I began this podcast, my blog, and my book to be released next year, Secrets of American Orchestral Music. 
One of the first things one learns about Schumann is the story of how he came to be a composer in the first place. He did play bass in a dance band, but never considered it very serious. Then he went to a concert at Carnegie Hall and heard the New York Philharmonic, conducted by the great Arturo Toscanini. He was so blown away by the performance, he said, I I was overwhelmed. I had never heard anything like it. The very next day, I decided to become a composer. So he dropped out of New York University, quit his job, enrolled at the Malkin Conservatory of Music to study composition, and a short five years later, he graduated from Columbia University. Who knew it could be so easy to become a composer? While this anecdotal story is humorous, it accurately shows a key characteristic of Schumann's personality. He is an optimist, endlessly curious, and has a childlike approach to new endeavors. He is also steadfast and resolute in his values, many times refusing to compromise his artistic work or arts administration efforts. Though not all of William Schumann's biographical history is pertinent here, some key positions and career events, as well as insight into his composition process, help to contextualize the unique nature of the man and his music. One fortuitous happenstance came at the beginning of his journey to become a composer. In 1930, primed by having just attended his first orchestral concert, Schumann saw a sign for the Malkin Conservatory, walked in, and according to him, registered for a course in harmony because he had heard somewhere that composers began by studying harmony. Just like that. This placed him with Max Person, a teacher more interested in discovering the intricacies of each individual piece rather than regurgitating from, quote, a textbook of dull orthodoxy. Not long after earning a teaching degree from the Columbia University Teachers College, Schumann carved out a teaching and administrative position at Sarah Lawrence College. The way in which this came about is characteristic of Schumann's free-form thinking and commitment to the highest quality in any endeavor he undertook. Schumann convinced the president and faculty advisory committee on appointments at Sarah Lawrence to make him the one-man coordinator working from a single focal point on a new set of freshman-focused courses. Schumann connected with the faculty and administration at Sarah Lawrence on a philosophical level, influenced by the progressive education movement of John Dewey and the concept that, quote, making knowledge one's own was the central goal of education. This desire for individuality and freedom from convention carried over into Schumann's composing. Keenly aware of contemporary trends, Schumann casts the, quote, emergence of a contemporary tonal language in the 20th century as a musical revolution. Referring to contemporary composers, presumably including himself, Schumann posits, the process of seeking a way of creating fresh sounds is a natural one for a truly created musician. It may be conscious or subconscious or both, but whatever the process, the result is innovative in musical speech. Even Copland recognized the boldness of Schumann's work, describing it as, quote, music of tension and power, and expounding on his rhythmic writing as so skittish and personal, so utterly free and inventive. 
Schumann's commitment to his own musical and educational standards resulted in his being tapped as president of Juilliard in 1945. Schumann was reluctant to even consider the post because, as Steve Swain puts it in his biographic work, Orpheus in Manhattan, quote, he could see no possible marriage between Juilliard's hidebound rote education and the progressive, student-oriented approach that he enjoyed at Sarah Lawrence, partly due to his honesty expressed to Juilliard's board of directors, Schumann was offered and eventually accepted the position. As a sign of the school's desire for change, Schumann immediately made drastic alterations to the Juilliard curriculum and faculty. One program he spearheaded is particularly of note here. Showing his independent thinking and will to move forward, Schumann explains his educational philosophy. The first requisite for a musician in any branch of the art is that he be a virtuoso listener. It has been a student who is adept at the writing of melodic dictation may be incapable of listening to a symphonic composition with an understanding of its design. In other words, an inability to hear the component parts of the language of music does not ipso facto mean integrated understanding, an understanding that can only be achieved when the whole work is clearly viewed as the sum of these parts. In an effort to replace conventional theory with more meaningful studies, the Juilliard School has discontinued its theory department and added to its curriculum a new department, Literature and Materials of Music. That is pretty amazing. I cannot imagine any school today eliminating their music theory department. This is the kind of ideology Schumann applied to his composition and administrative roles. In a 1986 interview, Schumann illustrates the interconnected nature of all his endeavors. Quote, Composition has been the continuum of my life's work, but it's been by no matter of means my sole pursuit. I would never be happy just being a composer. I've always wanted and needed to do other things of a general societal nature. Even through his compositional process, Schumann shows his independent thinking, intending not to be bound by the limitations of both his piano skill and of the instrument itself. According to a biography written by Vincent Persichetti, Schumann, quote, writes for the instruments of the orchestra directly, sings the parts at the top of his lungs because his music is essentially melodic. He does, however, use the piano for new vocabulary departures, that is, for experimentation. One more quote by Schumann from 1977 helps summarize his philosophy on the balance of artistic honesty and the ambition needed for such a high-profile career he had to that point. Quote, I would like to be loved through my music, as anybody would be. But I recognized that this was not necessarily to be the case, and it would be much better to be despised and write what you want than to be loved and write what you didn't want. I was asked that question just the other day. Why, when you write these difficult symphonies that hardly anybody ever plays, and you can write the New England triptych or orchestrate Ives' variations on America, why don't you write a holiday overture that would make you a lot of money and would be played a lot? Hopefully, the continued reverence of Schumann's music will suffice as an answer to that question.
Schumann's symphonic output is quite varied, ranging from symphonies and concertos to ballet and opera. Schumann got the most mileage out of his symphonies, and he admittedly put most of his focus on their creation. Schumann's symphonies are most representative of all his compositional work, even by his own statements in an interview with Overtones. Quote, It never occurred to me not to write symphonies. I like every medium in music when I'm working on it. But I believe that as long as writers write long and complicated novels, composers are going to write in the symphonic forms, because they give an opportunity that nothing else gives. Now to symphony number 10, The American Muse Itself. The recorded excerpts you will hear today are from a 2005 Naxos recording of the Seattle Symphony conducted by maestro Gerard Schwartz, a dear friend of this podcast. Written and premiered in 1976, this symphony was commissioned for the American Bicentennial by the National Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Antal Durati. The work is in three movements, con fuoco, larghissimo, and the third movement goes through many different speeds, but does begin and end with a presto. The orchestration is outrageously large. Four flutes, three oboes, English horn, E-flat clarinet, three B-flat clarinets, bass clarinet, three bassoons, contrabassoons, six horns, four trumpets, four trombones, tuba, percussion that calls for four players, timpani, piano, harp, celesta, and strings. None of this would have been surprising coming from Schumann at that point, but even today, that is quite a task to take on. The opening fanfare sets a tone of muscularity. Optimism, as Schumann might put it. and then gives way to a mostly brass chorale, punctuated by moments of woodwind interaction. Long after, we have a section of what we call homo rhythm. This is when all or large portions of the orchestra are playing the same active rhythms, but not the same notes. In fact, they are usually quite dissonantly contrasting notes. It is a powerful effect as Schumann builds a great deal of tension. In this excerpt, there is a short unison of homo rhythm followed by two independent layers.
After spending this entire movement in tonic disarray, giving a bit of tonal center, but then taking it away with swaths of dissonance, Schumann suddenly takes an about-face at the end, and we get, at first, blips of tonal, recognizable chords, before a final E-flat major chord grabs hold and blares to the end, as if we had been in that bright, happy key all along. I love that moment. The second movement, Larguissimo, is a work of beauty, but you have to stick with it. Schumann lets his slow movements develop as organically as possible, from the simplest of musical aspects. Here, he begins basically with a chord cluster, again moving only in homorhythmic motion, and very slowly at first. While the violas and then cellos take the lyrical line, which again does not change very much at all, but makes big glissando jumps when it does. Then what follows is an iconic Schumann sound, if there ever was one. I swear I could pick this writing out from any other composer on the planet. Violins slowly expand a high and still higher-reaching melodic line over chromatically moving chords in the violas and cellos, and just as the line starts to peak, he opens up the sound more. Then again, as another peak comes, he adds horns, and on and on, one layer after another. It is a long section, but here is a fairly representative moment.
And again, just like in the first movement, though this movement isn't quite so tonally wandering, he lets out all the tension, leaves off with a question mark, and gives us a big, fat, juicy E-flat major chord. Final movement, beginning presto, starts a series of homorhythmic sections, first strings alone, then trading off with the woodwinds. The activity begins with much space, but quickly becomes lively, almost furious. we had yet to come across was Schumann's craftiness with a fugue. Finally, in the last symphonic movement he ever wrote, in order to build up as much energy and tension as possible, Schumann writes a complex double fugue. This is not a tightly formed, rule-following, Bach-like fugue you would expect, but most of the elements you would normally expect are there. It gives him the chance to push forward and pull back at will. One theme is very active, harmonically and rhythmically, while the other is long held out notes with little movement.
you must be wondering if and when we get that E flat major chord we've gotten at the end of every other movement. We do! And in similar fashion, Schumann prefaces it with heavy dissonance and confusion. This time, though, the final brilliant chord arrives and finishes in full fanfare. Instant standing ovation. Beyond composition, Schumann taught at Sarah Lawrence College, served as president of the Juilliard School, facilitated its move into the newly built Lincoln Center, founded the Juilliard String Quartet, served as president of Lincoln Center itself, and won two Pulitzer Prizes and the National Medal of Arts. Many people desire to change or affect the world in some way. William Schumann did that and more during his time. As long as we perform or hear his music, he still does. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 